endurance sports involve incredible mind-body connection and the desire to ascend from what is believed to be possible as a human. Running, cross-country skiing, and swimming are all classified as endurance sports. So basically, your body is performing for a long time. These sports are generally approachable, so you may casually go cross-country skiing for a day in the mountains as a weekend activity. You may swim in a lake in the summer. These sports can be demanding of your capacity, however, physically and mentally, if you want to perform for longer or become faster. Now, there is a subset of endurance sports, ultra endurance, extreme endurance. I looked around and I actually don't know that they have an exact umbrella. These are activities people feel they, quote unquote, just aren't qualified to do or they don't have the chops for. These include ultra marathons, mountaineering, Ironman, long distance cycling, Excluding the possibility that a female Scandinavian Olympian was running around outside our house last night, what else might be a possibility? In conversation, these are the activities that will raise eyebrows. You will get the, oh my god, I could never do that. And holy shit, you are very badass, really not my realm. Well, friends, I am here to tell you that extreme endurance sports are for the faint of heart. Let me explain. I grew up very not athletic. I did jazz dancing in elementary school, and my short-lived young sports career ended at volleyball in middle school. I was also a cheerleader somewhere in there. I was allergic to running the mile in high school. I was asthmatic and emo. I did not do sports. I picked up running here and there in my adult life to lose weight, which would not recommend picking up physical activity with the sole goal of losing weight. Not the most healthy for your mental health. It never stuck for many reasons, but aforementioned, not a good reason to pick it up was part of it. I moved to Washington and I hiked a bit and then I got curious about the volcanoes here. I climbed a couple of them and bonked so bad, I believed I just didn't have what it takes. Whatever the hell what it takes was. However, when I was in the mountains, my soul sang. They were a haven for me, and I vowed to only make important life decisions surrounded by peaks and Douglas fir. I vowed to figure out what what it takes was. And I'm still on that journey. And I want to take you with me. Welcome back to the You're Not Qualified podcast. I am your host, Courtney Heater, and this is the first episode of the new series of the podcast, the Endurance Series, I think I will call it. In this series, we will meet people who are pushing themselves physically in ways they never thought possible and people who witness incredible transformation in those late bloomer athletes. Yesterday, I finished an incredibly inspiring book, Finding Elevation, by Lisa Thompson. That name might sound familiar to you. Lisa has completed the seven summits and was the second American woman to summit K2, which is the second highest mountain in the world and also considered the deadliest. 
Her story does not look like the story of so many endurance athletes. And that is why I love it and why I latched on. I cried probably like five different times and had to set it down and just stare out the window for a little bit, reflecting on what her words and her experience meant in my life and how I perceive my limitations in the same way that she was perceiving hers and pushing beyond them. She was not a D1 athlete. She grew up in the Midwest, as did I, where large hills might just be trash covered in grass. No joke. She was so unsure if she could, and that is what made her great. She moved through the fear and the pain and learned how to be excellent through trial after trial and error after error. She did what so many people do not believe they are capable of to show you you are capable. I interviewed Lisa in February this year, and I could not think of a better way to kick this new series off than an encore of our conversation. So we're going to listen to Lisa Thompson describe her experience climbing K2, what it means to be a woman in mountaineering, and someone who was having a very difficult time trusting what her body could do for her and pushing beyond everything she thought possible. I sincerely hope that this new endurance series inspires you to get out there and do badass things. I believe that you can because I'm doing it. And if I can do it, you absolutely can do it. And if Lisa can do it, I don't know if we could all do what Lisa's supposed to be honest, but we can damn well try, okay? And she is here to tell us all about it. So are you ready? Let's go. It's happening. All right. So today we are here with Lisa Thompson, a very special guest. I'm so excited to chat with you, Lisa. Lisa is the second American woman to summit K2, which is the second tallest mountain in the world. However, it is considered the deadliest. And she has summited the highest mountain on each continent. That includes Everest. That includes Kilimanjaro. That includes so many mountains. We're very excited to have you. Thank you for being here, Lisa. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I would love to just jump right into K2. It's so exciting. When did you go? Tell us about the climb. So I summoned K2 on my first attempt, which was in 2018. And I, I sort of jokingly say that my decision to climb K2, at least originally, was a little bit haphazard. I was hiking um, here in the Pacific Northwest on a horrible February day, and I was by myself, and it was super steep, and I'd forgotten to bring a hiking pole, and it was icy, and I was like sliding around. It was very comical. And I just was like, wow, if I could climb K2, that would be like, it felt really legit to me as a climber to be able to say that I had done that and to be proud of the way I had climbed it. And so that was 2014. I had not yet climbed in the Himalaya. Um, I hadn't climbed anything over 22,000 feet and didn't have 
really the skill that it took to climb any of those bigger mountains in the Himalaya or in the Karakoram. So K2, like you said in the intro, is the second highest mountain in the world. Um, it's in Pakistan and it borders, it's on the border between Pakistan and China. And so it's, um, you know, people often, like if I meet someone and they're like, did you, you climb Everest? That's amazing. Tell me all about it. And I'm like, yeah, it was, it was incredible. And I also climbed this mountain called K2, which is a lot harder. And they're like, yeah, but tell me about Everest. So people, it's not, it's getting a little more notoriety or a little more well-known in circles outside of mountaineering, but it's not a very well-known mountain because Everest is the tallest. And so it's, you know, therefore gets all of the acclaim. Um, but K2 is, uh, not only is it steeper than Mount Everest, it is much more dangerous. So there's a lot of what we call objective hazards like rock fall or avalanches that are um, more prevalent on K2 than on a mountain like Everest. And it also is much more remote than Everest. So, you know, as most people know, Everest has become pretty commercial, right? You know, and whether you think it that's really, good or bad, yeah, it's a different conversation, but it it has injected a lot of safety into that mountain. So there are, you know, there's a, a, a very well-stocked emergency room tent at base camp that's manned by volunteer physicians from all over the world. There are very talented helicopter pilots that are part of commercial helicopter operations that will pick you up from very high on the mountain if you need help and, you know, take you back to Kathmandu to, to a hospital. So there's all this infrastructure that adds a lot of safety and support to a mountain like Everest and most mountains in the Himalaya. That doesn't exist in Pakistan. Um, there's, you know, if you need help, you have to arrange that through the Pakistani army. Um, there's, you know, definitive medical care is very far away. And, and the other challenge about K2 is that the weather is just more unpredictable there than I think in a lot of on a lot of other mountains. Mm -hmm. And so storms and, you know, we experienced this in 2018, storms will just pop seemingly from out of nowhere or they'll last longer or they'll be more intense than predicted. And so all of those factors um, combine to make it, as you noted, a very deadly mountain. Mm -hmm. um, and it's particularly deadly for whatever reason, I think it's gotten better. But at one point, something like six women had summited and half of them had died or 12 had summited and six of them had died. Um, and so it just sort of had this like a little bit notorious reputation amongst women in particular. Um, and those things did draw me to it for sure. Um, I also, you know, took the time from that initial thought in 2014 until I summited in 2018 to really work on my skills and experience and independence in the mountains and to be sure that I was ready to take it on. Um, and it was still not like when I left Seattle that July in 2018, I remember not, I didn't feel hundred percent confident that I had what it took. And I remember just saying I was going to do my best and I was never going to climb above my ability. And there were a lot of moments where I wanted to quit. And I write about that in my book um, many days, maybe every day, that I just thought this mountain is too, so much bigger than me. What am I doing here? I questioned my decision-making ability. I questioned mm -hmm. my skill and everything. Um, 
And in those moments, I would just, I would just really seriously contemplate whether that was all that I was capable of. I would have this like question that I would pose to myself and I would do my best to make an honest assessment. And every time, you know, in those moments where it felt hard or the weather was bad or it was impossibly steep, I felt like I had more to give and I felt like I hadn't climbed yet like beyond my capability. Um, and so I kept going. That's, it's just insane. <laughs> it's like, that's so crazy that you have that where you can just dive deep and bring it out of you. We will get so much more into that kind of tenacity because not yeah. everybody has it. Even on smaller mountains here in the Pacific Northwest, oh, I think the same thing. And I'm like, why the hell do I like this? It hurts. It's uncomfortable. It's cold. It's scary. <laughs> it's <Yes>. just why? <laughs> but there is something um, in you and in others that love the really difficult parts of the world and the challenge that it brings. And it, it makes mountains make me a better person. So yeah. I would say the same thing. And yeah. I... That is sort of the central question in my book is why, why am I doing this? Why do I keep putting myself at risk? Why do mm -hmm. I, like you said, why, why do I seek out these extreme situations that are dangerous? Um, and you'll have to read the book to really get the answer. But, but I will give you like the, the short answer is that I learned so much about myself and what I'm capable of mm -hmm. that that then translates into all the other parts of my life. And it makes me just a better human in general, having done that exploration in the mountains. We can do anything because we do that. Yeah. And there's times when I'm like, you know, trying to get my Wi-Fi to work. And I'm like, if I climb K2, I can figure, I'm sure I can figure this out. Like our little audio blunder there. It's right. Like, exactly. We got this. We can do it. <laughs> Uh, so you have climbed seven, the seven tallest mountains then on each continent and, uh, you know, Denali, that would include Antarctica. Did you, do you have a favorite? Wow. So it's hard for Everest is special, of course, because it's the highest mountain in the world, but I really loved climbing Denali. I climbed Denali in 2013 and, um, that was the first time that I felt like I really had to push myself physically. And there was, you know, huge mental challenges too, but I'm, you know, a small statured woman. I weighed less than 115 pounds when I climbed that mountain. And, and part of the deal on Denali, which I think is great, is that you are responsible for carrying your own gear um, plus the shared gear of your team, which can include stoves and food and fuel. And you carry that in combination with a backpack and a sled most of the way. And so, you know, I knew that was going to be just an incredible physical challenge for me to carry. I wish I had the chance to weigh it. I think it, in combination, it probably weighed close to 85 pounds. Mm -hmm. And it was very important to me. It still is important to me to always be contributing equally to my team. And as the only woman on the team, I didn't want any slack, right? I didn't want someone to give me a lighter load than anyone else was carrying. That was really important to me. And so I would say that was really the first time that I set what I considered to be a pretty audacious goal and worked really hard, like followed a training plan um, every day, focused on what it was going to take to get me to the top and back. 
and was successful. So that Denali will always be a special place and a special mountain for me too. I love that. Denali's on my list for 2025. I love how you have it all. You're like me. I just had it all like. Yeah. I have it all written down and um, <laughs> a lot of it's financial. Don't get me wrong. But <laughs> oh, I totally, I believe me, I mortgaged my house twice to climb a mountain. So <laughs> I totally get it. <laughs> but we have to. Denali alone, I think, is like 17 grand or something around there. Yeah. yeah. And that's not including the plane travel. Right. And whatever gear you might need. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you hire a trainer to help you get ready, like all all that stuff. Um, Mountaineering is not, not an inexpensive endeavor for sure. Yeah. What's your book? We can plug that real quick. Yeah. So my book is called Finding Elevation, Fear and Courage on the World's Most Dangerous Mountain. And it's available everywhere that books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Target. And it's at its heart, it really is a climbing memoir. Um, so it appeal appeals to people who are interested in what it's like to be on an expedition or climb a big mountain or prepare to climb a big mountain. But the the overarching story is really my, you know, starting out as someone who was doubted, who, you know, didn't I myself as well as people around me didn't believe that I could climb these mountains. And then not only succeeding in that, but just the self-discovery that occurred along the way through cancer and divorce and the death of my father and all the things that I learned and overcame in the process. Um, that's really the, the sort of underlying inspirational story that's there too. That's beautiful. When did you write that? Well, I, I started writing when I had cancer in 2015. And, you know, now it's funny because I sort of naively thought, oh, I'll just take these journals, like publish them. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a very naive belief, um, which, you know, resulted in many, many rejections. And kind of, you know, the, the feedback that I often got was, you have a great story and it needs to be told, but you just don't know how to write. And so, which was shared. I appreciate it. I like you're I, really good at other things. Yes, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Stick with what you're good at. <laughs> um, and so that caused me to that seemed like a solvable problem. That seemed like, you know, I'm I studied engineering. I've you know have this capacity to learn. And so how do I go about learning how to become a better writer? And so I took a year, um, the end of 2018 through 2019 and studied memoir at the University of Washington, which was so eye-opening, you know, and now it's sort of laughable when I look back and read those early drafts that I forced my family to read and critique (laughs) because I learned a lot and, you know, I still have ways to go as an author, of course, but um, that for me was really the turning point when I felt like, okay, now I'm starting to get this. And I I understand I had more of a game plan about writing. I still did not know how to get Finding Elevation published. And so that was a whole nother multi-year, you know, process of making connections and asking everyone I knew who had any sort of connection into publishing yeah. uh, for a recommendation. But it finally also published by a local um, publisher called Girl Friday Productions. So you know, and when I look back, 
I am so grateful for the path that I took, even though it was arduous. And there were times when I would just like wanted to rip all those pieces of paper up and just say, forget the whole thing. Um, I'm so happy and proud of the book that I created and, you know, the people who helped me get there. That was a really important part of the journey, too. So one really important part of your personality here is you don't give up. And that's like extremely important for the mountains. But also, I and I hammer it into my listeners over and over and over again. But if you want to do something and you don't have the skill to do it, one beautiful thing about living in the world as it, as it is right now is no matter your age, no matter your location, yes. you yes. can find a way to learn. It's and so true. It's there. Yes. And there's so many free options online now. Like I'm amazed if I go to like Udemy or any or Apple, like any of those mm-hmm. places have just unbelievable resources for learning. And you're right. That didn't exist probably even 10 years ago. So yeah, yeah there's yeah. no reason not to keep learning. We're very lucky. We are. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's get into some of the mental stuff. And yeah. that's going to be a huge part of kind of the rest of the questions that I have for you, which are a lot. So we're going to get through what we can. But climbing is a practice, not only of physical endurance, but incredibly mental, arguably much more mental, especially in the way that I feel about it. So this causes people to feel unqualified to push harder. You get really scared on those mountains. You don't want to go higher. Um, your brain sometimes wins out, but in your case, not always. Yeah. So let's get into your experience with these complex fe- complex feelings, the fear, the doubt, the pain, um, yeah. but then accomplishment. Um, first question in that whole area, pushing past fear, regular occurrence while on a mountain, you're thousands of feet above sea level on any mountain. Yeah. And, you know, like even Rainier, you're like 9, 10, 11,000 feet up. Right. Do you have a specific story of pushing past fear in a moment where many people would panic and turn the heck around? Yes. Um, so there was a moment where, so on K2, where someone actually died. Um, and While we, you were on the mountain? Well, right, while we were climbing. And so, you know, this is something that as a climber, we have to accept that that's a potential outcome especially on that mountain and so witnessing that fall um it's hard to describe the complex emotions that just instantly take over your body and you know the way that like you're you're feeling fear and confusion and concern and helplessness and all of that like instantly my body froze and my legs started physically shaking and I had to like calm myself down and sort of piece through each of those emotions. Like I wanted to help him and I could not, right? He, he fell beyond me and I couldn't help him. And so getting through that feeling of helplessness and then getting through the feeling of like personal safety, like am I, is my team like just assessing everything that's going on around you? And what was left then after that was fear. Like you're then face to face, even though I had read and heard stories and talked to people about how dangerous K2 was, it's you don't get it until you are there. 
and something like that happens. And it really just like zeroed in on how dangerous that mountain was um, because, you know, he he didn't do anything wrong. He had the same aspirations that I did. And so why do I think I'm special? You know, why do I think that I should continue? And there was a lot of fear wrapped up in that about, you know, is this mountain safe and should I keep going and and self-doubt of do I have what it takes? And so I think what I had to do, you know, in that moment was first get safe and then yeah. get calm enough to continue climbing. And just that decision of do I go up or down? Like you don't even know where what what to physically do. And along with um, the other female climber on my team, we decided we would continue to camp because that was seemed like the safest thing to do. We still didn't know why the fall had occurred. And you know, getting there and just kind of sitting with all of those emotions and like acknowledging them. <laughs> which is something that doesn't always happen in climbing, right? Like there want to be this very stoic and strong and, um, and you might not have time to acknowledge it. Right? Yes. Sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes you need to just, like my grandma would say, just like dust the dirt off and keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that particular day we were fortunate to have, you know, to get to camp and have time to process it and think through like, is this safe? And should I be here? And do I want to take these risks? Um, and ultimately, I felt like for me, there there was a story I think I had to tell through K2. Like there was this just sort of deep down, very small, like spark of something that compelled me to keep pushing forward. And to stay true to those two promises I made myself, which were that I wouldn't climb above my ability and I would do my best. And I felt like I could still do those things. Um, And so I kept going. Um, But my relationship with fear, I think, is an interest. I mean, I think most for most climbers, like, you know, fear is something that and I, I would imagine you've experienced this, too. Like, I think you need a little bit of it to keep you sharp and focused, focused on, you know, your own this personal sort of health and ability, focused on the weather, focused on the terrain, focused on your gear, your equipment, your team. Because I think without that small amount of fear, you can very easily become complacent. Yeah. And I think that's when, when bad things happen. But on the flip side, too much fear can be completely stifling. You know, that was exactly where I was in that moment after the fall was I physically couldn't move. I was so afraid and I'd never experienced that in my life. And then I had to just, you know, sort of tell myself I was okay and mentally just force my body to keep going so that I could get someplace where I could just sit and rest and think for a minute. Two follow-up questions for that. What part of the climb were you on yeah so I was I had I was climbing from advanced base camp to camp one so it was the very really like the first day of climbing oh god okay yeah so you could have turned around which was kind of the second question and like when can you no longer turn around on k2 
I mean, you you can turn around at any point, really. It just uh, gets more complicated. The high, the higher you go, it gets more complicated in terms of like, you know, how that affects the rest of your team in terms of like just the technicality of climbing. Um, so at that point, we were on a moderate snow slope. He had fallen far above that um, moderate snow slope, and I could have e- I could have very easily, you know, it'd be like just if you're from Seattle, like descending from. Camp Mirror to Paradise, that sort of slope. Uh, so it would have been very easy to turn around. Um, but it just, there was this, yeah, like I said, this part of me that that knew there was more for me to do on K2. And and yeah. that ultimately was what kept me going forward. And now you have this amazing accomplishment under your belt of being the second second woman to, for American woman to actually summit. Um, man, that's so sad. I hope. I hope they were able to like recover his body for his yeah. family and yeah they were and... oh good yeah. okay yeah yeah but yeah that is it's it is it's one of those tough things to say where it is like it is just a risk it's a risk that you run to get on a mountain like you are not guaranteed to come back down nope and I, I think you know that's something that I've had to really come to terms with and accept and and especially for K2, that was, I felt like I was being insincere um, if I didn't recognize and acknowledge that that was a potential outcome. And to be upfront about that with my family too, because I, you know, couldn't, it wasn't fair to them, you know, who aren't as intimately involved with climbing um, if they didn't know that and understand that. And so um, yeah, I had a lot of long conversations with my sister about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The family aspect, too, is something that I think that a lot of people um, like talk about even. Like if I even yes. mention another mountain to my mom, she'll be like, why do you do this? Like the last one I mentioned to her, she's like, oh, I heard that they're not climbing that anymore. And I'm like, mom, like, that's a lie. <laughs> like, that's literally just booked it. Stop. But yeah, it's so hard. It's, it's hard. And I get it. It's hard. And, and I recognize that that's coming from a place of love and care and concern. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially with my father, who um, he, I learned he had cancer right after I finished climbing Everest. So when I was back, he was diagnosed while I was climbing and he died about a month after I got home. And so it was important for me that he knew I was going to attempt K2, not that I wanted or was asking for his permission. And I knew he wouldn't be around to actually see me do it, but I wanted him to at least know that I sort of had this one last big mountain that I wanted to climb. Um, and he had always been very, very supportive. But as someone who rarely left the Midwest of the, the United States, he just, you know, it was hard for him to wrap. And I imagine your family is the same way from being from the Midwest. It's hard to wrap your brain around the complexity of what it means to climb a mountain. And sometimes that means, you know, like I think my sister actually became more comfortable with me climbing as she researched more and learned that, you know, there are safety mechanisms and like, this is how it works. And if something goes wrong, these are the resources you have. So it made her more comfortable. Um, but 
I think my family still to this day can't really, doesn't really understand why. Yeah, that is a good resource to send them. When I, um, and I did Rainier, Dave Hahn was one of my guys. Yeah, he's He's amazing. He's amazing. And I sent basically his resume to my family. That's impressive. Yeah. I was like, so this is who's guiding me. He's he's done right. all the big ones. Right. And he's done Everest, I think, like 12 times or something to the top. And I'm like, yeah. I'm in good hands. Yes. <laughs> and he's also just an incredible human being. Too. Oh, I loved him so much. His stories, it's like my favorite part of just sitting in that old rickety shack on top of Mir uh-huh. and like yeah. listening to his stories. <laughs> I loved him so much. Um, was he ever one of your guides? No, I never climbed with him. I met him actually. I was randomly in Taos, which is where he lives in the win in the summer. Oh, was summer anyway? He has a house there. I just was like, we've never met. Do you want to grab coffee? And he was like, sure. So He's we so like got nice. together. <laughs> I mean, it was you know it was great. He's like as you said, super accomplished and also just a, a great person. Very funny. Yes. Great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. So we, we've talked about the mentals, but um, it's not to quote that Seahawks player that talks about mentals, but, <laughs> 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 but the uh, mental fortitude you need to climb a mountain is truly no joke. How did you train that? Yeah. Um, I realized actually going back to Rainier I remember one time I think I was just going to mirror for the day to train and there was a a climbing team next to me and you know we were sort of like in tandem at the same pace for a little while and there's a, a guy who you can tell was very fit and he turned around like an hour in and I, I remember thinking like it's totally mental for him like he he just thinks he can't do it and I you know I now I I coach mountaineers and so I I get to experience and coach people through that firsthand but I knew very early on that it was a a big component of climbing and I I took it as seriously as physical training because Mm -hmm. I felt like I've always felt like I can't control the weather I sometimes can't control my team but I can control my attitude and my fitness. And to me, that fitness includes mental fitness too. And so before I went to Everest, I worked with a sports psychologist who was great. And she gave me so many tools that I still use today. Um, If things get difficult, you know, mantras that I use and say, um, ways that I motivate myself to keep going, ways that I assess whether I'm, you know, as I said, like still, is this all that I'm capable of? Like being able to assess whether I should keep going or not. And there have been so many moments where, I mean, even, you know, for me climbing Rainier, like two summers ago, I was climbing with friends and it got really windy above the disappointment cleaver. And I was like, I'm just not really having fun anymore. <laughs> you know, and I kind of gone through those mental, mental things. And I was like, I think I'm good. Like I'm ready to turn around. And mm-hmm. so I use those tools all the time, even climbing, you know, mountains around here. Um, mm-hmm. And a big part of it is just 
stopping that negative mental chatter that can start and very quickly spread. And sometimes that comes from, I just don't feel well. I'm not acclimatizing as fast as I should be. You know, other members of my team are faster than I am. This backpack is too heavy. My stomach hurts. Like it can be, it can come from anything. And sometimes those are legit things that you need to stop and take care of. But often it is just me comparing myself to a situation unfairly or comparing myself to another person when I'm not competing with anybody on that yeah. mountain as me in the mountain. And so having the, the tools first to identify that I'm starting to get wound up about something and then having the tools to, to stop it and to just repeat something very positive that just literally drowns out that negative stuff. Um, that's just been a huge tool for me. And I, I use love it that. like even in traffic. <laughs> yeah, Seattle traffic sucks now. Yes. <laughs> the heck happened. Exactly. <laughs> uh, in in that vein, you you must have used it as a breast cancer survivor as well through treatments. Yes. So how how did that help you? make it through that in one piece. Yeah, there's so many parallels to climbing and fighting cancer. And people ask me regularly, like, what did climbing help you, you know, have the strength to fight cancer or did fighting cancer give you the strength to to Mm -hmm. climb tough mountains? And I think those two things are so intertwined for me that it's, I don't know that I can really separate them. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were many, many times when I was fighting cancer that I, you just feel so overwhelmed mentally, so similar to climbing, by what's happening to your body, by this, you know, thing that's going on that you have no control over and no say in or very little say in. And that for me and for a lot of people was just stifling and there were times when I you know didn't want to get out of bed I didn't feel well and I would tell myself just do one thing like say I'm going to wash my hair or I'm going to put the dishes away <laughs> like just just have those little micro goals mm-hmm. that eventually add up you know and when you look back you see how much ground you've covered and what you've accomplished um but I think cancer like climbing sometimes requires just that like micro level of this is I'm going to climb to the next rock I'm going to do just one thing today that gets me closer to my goal and when you do that consistently it makes a big difference yeah and then next day leads to next day and it gets totally ideally easier not always with cancer but you know you can see the forest of the trees yeah and and I think it also becomes a mindset too yeah I think when I was, I know when I was first diagnosed, it was very easy to just get bogged down and, you know, by just doing those little micro things, it becomes just a part of who you are and how you navigate life. And I think you come from a place of, you know, being much more positive and grateful than getting focused on the negative. Yeah. Are you cancer free now? Yes. Thank you for asking. Yeah. So cancer-free um, this past summer, my uh, surgical oncologist was like, you, you don't have to see me every year anymore. And I was like, what? 
but I want, like, can't I just come and see you anywhere? Go get coffee. Don't go back to the hospital. <laughs> there was really a moment that I wasn't, I should have like done the math and realized, you know, it had been five years, but I just, I wasn't ready to be like sort of set loose like that. But, but it's nonetheless a very good sign. Bittersweet. Well, yeah. congratulations. I'm very Thank happy you. to hear that. Thank More you. mountains in the in the future then. For sure. Yes. <laughs> you cannot be stopped. <laughs> Let's talk about your coaching. So yes. Alpine Athletics, you started at in 2018 right. for aspiring mountaineers. Is that right. women and men? Women and men. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Any anyone who's aspiring to climb really at any level. Um, and Alpine Athletics really grew out of, you know, first I was coached by some really great mountaineers and was just so curious about the process and endurance sports in general. And I started to realize that I was often much more prepared for a climb than most of the other people on my team. Um, and that goes back to me, you know, being very ardent about I can't can, there's a lot of things I can't control, but how I show up is not one of them. And so I started, you know, coaching my friends who were just climbing Rainier. And then eventually, actually, while I was at K2 Base Camp, um, just put together the business plan and the content for my website and started coaching in 2018. What a thing to do at Base Camp. I know. Well, there's a lot of downtime on X. That's amazing. There. <laughs> <laughs> was there a certain need in the industry that you felt like you could fill? I think there, so it's a pretty small, you know, people, there's obviously lots of trainers, but there's not many, although it's growing, that focus specifically on mountain sports. Mm -hmm. um, and as mountaineering and other mountain sports become more popular and mainstream, that the market is growing, which is fantastic. There aren't many women. I can think of two other women um, coaches. Um, and I've, you know, been fortunate to have climbed most of the mountains that I coach people. Um, to prepare for. And so I think that definitely gives me an advantage that I, you know, like I've been to Aconcagua, I've been to Denali, I've climbed Everest. I know what it's like to actually climb each of those peaks. Yeah. Um, and I also <clears throat> like to focus on, obviously the physical preparation is huge, but like we were talking about, the mental component is, I would argue at some points, just as important as being physically fit. And then and the other component that I focus on is making sure people are prepared tactically. So being yeah. sure that you understand the route, that your gear is super dialed, that you've, you know, simulated as much of the climb as you can. You've studied it. You understand the risks. All of those things, I think, come into play to make people, you know, really well-rounded in terms of preparation, not just showing up physically fit, but lacking those other two pieces, which I, like I said earlier, can can often result in not getting too far past the parking lot. Right. That's so interesting you say that because there are obviously differences in how people feel prepared and what goes into helping them feel prepared. Yes. Uh, for me, it was like I have never been on a rope team without a guide yet, but even even so, I wanted to take a crevasse rescue training course yeah. so I knew what yeah. to do even though they would be there in the moment to tell me what to do. But I knew that if something happened, and or even like if I got roped up and I was like, ah, oh, like, I don't know this knot that they're tying and that bothers me. Totally. Like yes. it would bother me and it would ride yeah. on me. And I was like, yes. I need my mental space clear. So what could I learn first? So smart. 
so smart to do that. My good friend came with me. She didn't do any of that and she felt fine. So it's like it's such a difference in how people feel prepared. Yes. And when you're when you're on a guided team, you have that safety net of, you know, professional guide who can help you. Um, But I think if, you know, you're you never know what can happen. Like guides can fall in crevasses, too. So being able. Yeah, they're human. As don't tell your mom that. (laughs) As as self-sufficient as possible, just it makes you a stronger team member. And to me, that's super important part of climbing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dave Hahn hasn't, I don't think, fallen into a crevasse. He could probably just claw his way out, I'm sure. Probably. Actually. (laughs) It's like superhuman. (laughs) (laughs) What about your all-women-led expedition in Nepal last year then? Tell us about that. That's exciting. So this um, just so I'm looking at a picture of us now. Um, So yeah, here I'll just, I just have this on my car at my desk. This is all of us like Oh, orders. Our cook staff wasn't there yet, but this is us at a tea house. I would look so happy. Yeah. So this was the idea of um, myself and a couple of other female climbing friends, Um, you know, and we've all been the lone woman on a team and and that's getting better. Um, But we just we were chatting over Zoom and we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we just had an expedition that was entirely women? And so we just pursued that. And and for us, it meant not just that the climbers were female, but that everyone who was a member of the team was a woman as well. And so like you saw in the picture, like all of our porters were female. Our base camp staff was female. And it was, I wasn't prepared for how meaningful that climb would be and how much we would all take from it. Like to me, it was just like in the beginning, it was like, yeah, let's just show what women can do when we support each other. And it was so, so many facets of just being special and a very freeing experience. So we are a few days in, we're walking. So the mountain we climbed is called Chalazzi. It's a 21,000-foot mountain, a little bit technical. Um, it's in the valley next to Mount Everest. And so mm-hmm. most of the walk to base camp is the same as, as, this, as though you're walking to Everest base camp. And a few days in, we thought, like, I just don't feel as stressed as I normally do. We had all summited Everest before. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just realized that we didn't, we weren't carrying around any of the pressure of needing to perform. And often that's self-inflicted. Totally understand that. But there's often, I think, on a mixed gender team that is predominantly male, there's this pressure that women feel to, you know, carry the same load and to sort of go along with jokes that are maybe a little off color or to push harder because you don't want to be seen as the weakest person on the team. And none of that existed. And and so that was just an incredible freeing feeling that created an environment where we were all happy and supportive and open about how we were feeling about the climb. And, And that created this other interesting observation, which is that we were all afraid. Like, like I was responsible for logistics and I thought, it's never going to come together. <laughs> you know, we're going to get to base camp and there's not going to be any tents. <laughs> and, 
And the, you know, women who had never walked more than two days from their village agreed to help us cook. And they didn't think we were going to like the food that they cooked for us, which was, in fact, fabulous. <laughs> um, so just seeing that we all had this fear of not being capable yeah. and that we were able to move forward in a supportive way in spite of that was it just created like I've never laughed I've never cried so much I've never danced so much on an expedition it was just really really special and and part of what made us special too is that we had intentionally asked women to join the team who had either experienced some sort of hardship so maybe their husband died in an avalanche on Everest or their husband was a porter and was ill and and she needed to find a way to support her family or women who were interested in learning to work in the mountains and and couldn't you know couldn't get a job as a porter because they'd never done that before so an expedition wasn't going to hire them and so it was this really cool we also raised money to send eight girls to school in Nepal um girls who would be otherwise likely to be trafficked and so it was just a very cool full circle kind of climb and moment and just incredibly supportive. And the climbing, so that was that was like nothing to say about the mountain, which was absolutely beautiful. And the days that we were there, uh, there was no one else climbing. Oh so, my God, the mountain to yourself. Yeah. And just especially in Nepal, where you know, there's some very, very popular, well-known mountains. Um, mm-hmm. and this wasn't one of them. And so just to have that whole mountain experience to ourselves was absolutely spectacular. That's incredible. Were you on a side of the mountain where you could see Everest? We couldn't see Everest. Yeah. That's so cool. You're like, hey, we've been there. It was, which, and even, you know, looking at it now, it still feels like, holy cow, I can't, I can't believe I was up there. I can't believe I did that. Oh yeah. It's nuts when you see it, when you see it, you're like, I stood on top of that. That's going to be just the most insane feeling, especially for Real, for sure. The biggest mountains in the world. Yes. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> uh, so I pulled the um, the folks from Instagram about, well, I guess the question to them was if you could ask, because I didn't want to tell them who you were yet, because I would spoil it. So I was asking if they could ask one of the most accomplished female mountaineers of our time any question they wanted to, what would the question be? So I have five questions here. Some okay. of them tap, they tap into a little bit of what we've been talking to, talking about, um, but kind of maybe if we could just like sort of rapid fire it to make it yeah. a little bit yeah. fun. Yeah. Awesome. So here they are. First one is from Elisa. What do you tell yourself to keep going when all you want to do is stop and turn around? Like maybe what's your mantra? <laughs> so my mantra, my go-to mantra is I am strong. And so, and I, I learned that from the sports psychologist and I will use it in tandem with my body moving or with my breathing. So often I'll, I will move, say my right foot and I will say the words I am, and then I'll move my left foot and say the word strong. And I just, and I, I really try to like feel it, not just, you know, like just, I want it to be more than words for it to really have an impact. I love that. And it's with the movement too. Like you got to put one foot there. Correct. Yeah. You, gotta, you don't get to say it unless you, you move you the foot. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> From Steph. And spoiler alert for Steph, she's a good friend of mine. And this idea came up on our last hike that we did together where we ended up in a blizzard um, this just like uh, last month. And we were seriously like, what are we doing out here? We literally just hiked up to some hot springs and we're like, was it worth it? (laughs) But when we were on our way down in the blizzard, we were kind of toying with this idea and she reminded me of it. And she's like, you got to ask her. So when slash how do you decide if a climb is for physical strength or mental fortitude training? Mm. So I think it starts out as physical. Like if I if I'm preparing for a big expedition, I the first few months will be all about just physically getting prepared, getting stronger. Mm -hmm. Um, and then at some point I will start studying the mountain and I'm a complete nerd and make pivot tables and like totally geek out. And then once I know that, I kind of match that up with my concerns. So if I'm worried, like when I went to Antarctica, I was very worried about being cold, for example. And so I needed to develop a plan for what would happen if I was cold. And that's where the mental part comes into it. Or if I'm worried about rock fall then I need to develop some sort of mental game so that if that happens or if I'm in a situation, I have a plan to get through it. Right. Do you ever just slog yourself up like Mount Sai like five times for mental strength? Yeah. 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 So there were a lot of like doing mailbox peak, you know, ice doing, you know, Sai like up one side, down the other side and then reversing it. Um, All that stuff is just a huge mental. I think anytime you do two things anytime you do repeats like that it's a big mental um and anytime you're doing something super monotonous like when i coach people who maybe live in dubai and like they don't like there's no mountains for them to climb and it's too hot for them to go outside and so they've got to like train stairwells for four hours and that becomes a huge just mental like just getting through it yeah yeah half hour is hard yes 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 yeah (laughs) <laughs> this is from DeHay. What was your process for getting more confident in mountaineering? Great, great question. And that's a big deal. Um, so I intentionally sought out friends, like as I, you know, sort of built this little community and became more aware of climbing in Seattle, I would make friends with people who knew more than I did about, let's say, rock climbing. Like I'm still not like really great rock climber and so and I would be totally transparent about like hey like you're super good at rock climbing can we go out someday and like I'll I'll buy beer and pay for gas and can you show me how to build anchors and so it was just about like finding people who I trusted who were willing to teach me and and also you know if you're in the northwest and other parts of the country too there's really great organizations that you can join that have this training slash education environment where you get to go out with people who are more experienced than you and really learn and get your skills and therefore confidence super solid. Great, great advice. There's tons of resources around you that you might not realize. So many. Yeah. Yeah. From Matt, which climb had the best outcome that was least expected, which is kind of morbid, Matt. (laughs) But... Here we are. I was saying it, it was this most recent climb. 
um, of Chilotzi, the all women's climb, because I didn't, it was for sure the best outcome. And I, I didn't going in fully appreciate how meaningful it would be to me. Mm. Love that. You know, like I can't even, ah, like the all women on such a beautiful climb yeah. and you're all together in it. How many days was it? So it was, we climbed the, we took us five days to get to base camp. We took a pretty leisurely stroll because we wanted to acclimatize and then we climbed for four days wow. and then walked so out. Good. You guys are going to be best friends forever. We are. We're already planning to do it again next year. Uh-huh. I love that. <laughs> and one more from Jennifer. How do you care for knee pain during your climbs? Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, that I, alone will make me want to turn around. <laughs> my my knees definitely wish they belonged to somebody else who was less active. Um, so I first, I mean, f- part of it comes from just being very strong and strengthening all those little support mm-hmm. muscles by doing, um, I tend to not wear shoes when I do any kind of strength routine because I think it helps me stabilize little muscles in my legs and ankles. And then doing lots of one-legged things like one-legged squats, for example will help to strengthen your legs and get all those like the the muscles that support your knee super strong and healthy. And then I will usually prehab with some some Advil and maybe a Tylenol if I know, like we keep going back to Rainier, but like Rainier, you know, after you summit, you descend 9,000 feet. It's it's a slog. And so yeah, like doing things like using poles, having really supportive shoes, and then um, drugs. Yeah, drugs, man. I mean, it's okay. It's okay it to take okay. them. <laughs> drugs, drugs are our friends. Sometimes, friends, drugs are our friends. So I'm popping in because I received a question post recording this episode with Lisa from a listener. They wrote in just a little bit late because we had already recorded, but I emailed Lisa asking her if she was fine just replying to the question via email. She was totally all about it. So I'm going to read you the question, and then I'm going to read you her answer, and it is all absolutely fantastic and a little bit giggle-worthy, but very much an important thing to think about when you are even on long hikes or if you are just somebody that goes on a a very long day hike, not even just overnight, and especially a woman, and you need to think about going to the bathroom. I have had, and my friends can attest, that I have some bathroom mishaps when I am very active. I have a really fun story that I will tell at a later time about a half marathon that I did, and I had to emergency shit in the woods it happens, friends. It happens. And it's apparently a runner thing, the runner shits. But it also happens when you're on overnights in the mountains, obviously. You're going to have to go to the bathroom. But we're not talking about number two here. We're just talking about number one for this question. And it's still something that we have to think about, especially as women. Because if you are on a rope team, which means you are roped in, you cannot, for safety reasons, take yourself out of the rope move away from the crowd, come back. So you have to pee right there. A lot of women drop trowel, squat, pee. There are other ways. So we asked Lisa what her preference is. And we, I mean, Allison. Allison's question 
was. So, Shiwi or what? Lisa Thompson's reaction? Awesome and important question and she wishes more women would ask and share about these topics. Lisa says, my preference is the old school freshette. I tried other more flexible funnels and made a mess, especially when wearing multiple layers and a harness. Whatever funnel you choose, I recommend practicing in the shower first. Solid advice, Lisa. I told her in my in my email to her, I used a shiwi on a hike. And it takes some getting used to it. I should have used it and gotten used to it first. Like I literally was taking it out of the packaging on the hike. So don't do that. Practice in the shower first. These days, unless she is on a rope team or in an extremely cold weather, she probably just squats. All right. Now back to the recording. Uh, well, that was the majority of the questions that I had for you. And I'm just awesome. still just so I'm on cloud nine. It's so nice to know you, Lisa. I will for sure be hitting you up for some training. There's you like, do. yeah, I some will. I will. And in that, in that vein, is there anything else you would like to talk about that we didn't get to? No, I think we, like, I'm glad we covered my book. I encourage everyone to check it out if you're curious about climbing or how the mountains can be healers and teachers. And yeah, if you have questions about climbing, check out alpineathletics.net. Perfect. And where can people find you otherwise and sign up for your training? Yes. So Lisa Climbs is my website and that's also my Instagram handle. Um, so that's the best way to track me down. And then my company is alpineathletics.net. You're a full owner of Alpine Athletics? Yes. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Thank you so much for your time, yeah. Courtney. This has really been fun. Oh, so much fun. Thank you so much for listening to the You're Not Qualified podcast, you capable babes. I'm very excited that you made it to the end of this episode. I would love to hear from you if you feel inspired by the stories that you hear on this podcast. If you feel inspired by this particular one, please drop me a line. I can be reached by email, ynqpod at gmail.com. I am most active on Instagram. The handle is at ynqpod. Please drop me a DM there. I love chatting with you all. Write a comment, anything you'd like. I just want to hear what you think. If you think that you'd be a great fit for this podcast and you want to come on and tell your story of how you overcame imposter syndrome, please get in touch. Or if you know of somebody that you think would also love to tell their story, get them in touch with me. would love to hear from them. If you like what you hear, I love it when you subscribe. So please do so or follow me depending on what platform you're listening on. And also leave a review. Spotify does this really fun thing now where you can actually leave a review after a prompt. It's a really exciting way to get engaged. I realized it not too long ago when scrolling through Spotify that they let you put prompts as the creator and I would love to hear from you. So please just get in touch. Let's get involved. I am so excited that you are even listening and I really, really, really hope 
that this inspires you to get out and do that damn thing. Go do everything that scares you. You are way more capable than you think you are. I promise you. Again, friends, thank you so much for listening. Go do that thing. I will see you very soon. Bye.